to Psalm 108. Psalm 108. The, the title of this uh, psalm uh, message is Assurance of God's, that God's Enemies Will Be Destroyed. The Assurance that God's Enemies Will Be Destroyed. Now, this psalm is a psalm of trust, trusting in God. And it teaches us the assurance that a person can have when the Lord is their God. The psalm is actually a psalm that's made up uh, of parts from two other psalms that David wrote. Verses 1 through 5 here are from Psalm 57, verses 7 through 11. And verses 6 through 13 here are from Psalm 60, 5 through 12. And since David is the author of both of these psalms, Psalm 57 and Psalm 60, the verses of this psalm in 108 may be credited to him also, even if the arrangement may have been the work of an anonymous editor. And as this psalm shows us, there was significant modification of some parts of the book of Psalms so that the psalms could be used in the differing circumstances of temple worship. This is a song of triumph, praising the Lord for his loyal love. And it's given with the full expectation that his enemies, God's enemies, will be destroyed as a result of their own doing. And because David was convinced that God will bring triumph in the defeat of the nations, he prayed for divine leadership. He prayed for God to lead him. Because David was convinced that God will triumph, again, uh, he says, hey, you know, he's going to ask God for that help. Again, this is a psalm of trust. It shows the assurance that a person can have when the Lord is their God. The theme of the psalm is victory in God's strength. With God's help, we can do more than we think. We're so prone to think many times, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing that, 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 that I can do. The author is David. So let's begin now with verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 108. Oh God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise even with my glory. Awake, lute and harp, I will awaken the dawn. So in this psalm, King David starts out his day by praising the Lord. How do you start your day? Is that how you start your day? What are the first words out of your mouth when you get up? What are your first thoughts when you get up in the morning? Do you say, good morning, God, or God, it's morning? You know, how do you look at the day? It says here that David wakes up even before dawn to spend that time with God. He says, I will wake the dawn up, basically, with a song. He asks God for help in his battles and trusting that God will give him victory over his enemies soon. He especially, especially those in the fortified cities of the fortified mountain stronghold of Edom, which is where the psalm ends. Psalm 119, 147 through 148 says this. I rise before the dawning of the morning and cry for help. I hope in your word. My eyes are awake through the night watches that I may meditate on your word. And we believe that David wrote Psalm 119 because it's all about the wonderful word of God. David chose prayer and the word over sleep. Boy, how I do the opposite. Most people just say, I need, I need my sleep. David said, huh, I need that sweet time with God. I need that prayer time. I need that devotion with God. And we do need a lot more devotion than we do sleep. Two important basics of successful prayer are found here. The first is, is that we constantly develop an attitude of prayer. 
and, in com- and stay in communion with the Lord. At morning and during the watches of the night, which were sunset to 10 p.m. and 10 uh, to 2 until dawn. That's when the psalmist prayed to the Lord. Paul called it in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, praying without ceasing. Now, praying without ceasing doesn't mean that we walk around mumbling prayers. It means to keep the communication line open to God so that nothing comes between the Father and us. The second basic and successful prayer is the Word of God. Because apart from God's Word, we can't know God's will. Because it's through God's Word that God reveals Himself and His will to us. Each verse in this section of Psalm 119, verse 145 through 52, mentions the Scriptures and the writer's devotion to God's Word. We need to balance the Word of God with prayer in our devotional life and in our ministry. Because you see, all Bible and no prayer means light. It's like light without heat. No, again, um, all Bible and no prayer, it, it's like zeal. It ends up being zeal without knowledge. Saul emphasized both the word of God in prayer and prayer together. In 1 Samuel twelve twenty three. listen to what Samuel says, where it says there. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Notice prayer and teaching. Teaching what? God's word. Jesus did the same thing in John 15, 7. Jesus calls this abiding. In John 15, 1 through 11, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask. What's asking? Prayer. You will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. The spiritual leaders in the early church in Acts chapter 6, verse 4 said, But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Prayer and the word of God go together. And when we meditate on the Word of God, the, sp- the Father speaks to us. And when we pray, we speak to the Father. We need both instruction and intercession if we're going to be balanced children of God. The first thing David has to say here is that his heart was steadfast in verse 1. Steadfast. It means fixed. He was fixed on God. The secret of his stability is because God is a steadfast or faithful God, and that's David's confidence in him. Daniel chapter 6, verses 26 through 27, we read, For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. King Nebuchadnezzar had come to believe that Israel's God was real because of the steadfastness, that is the faithfulness of Daniel and his friends. Here Darius was also convinced of God's power because Daniel was faithful and God rescued him. And even though Daniel was a prisoner in a strange land, his devotion to God was a testimony to the powerful rulers around him. You see, if you find yourself in new surroundings, use that opportunity to testify about God's power in your life. Be faithful to God so he can use you to make an impact on other people. And you know what? God is even more than steadfast. He's also a God whose love and faithfulness reach as high as the sky and the heavens, verse 4 says, which is another way of saying that his love and his faithfulness is infinite so that they're beyond our total understanding. Verses 3 and 4. 
The psalmist goes on to say, David said, I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples, and I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your mercy is great above the heavens and your truth reaches to the clouds. It's because God is faithful that David can also be faithful. Are we faithful like this? Are our hearts steadfast? Are they fixed on God and the ways of God? You know, I, you know, I wish they all were. You know, there are people who go to Bible teaching churches. They've heard the word of God taught faithfully. But many of them are like the people in the parable that Jesus taught, told about the farmer who went to sow seed. Listen to what he said in, in again, Matthew 13, 4 through 9. Some seed, that is the word of God, the seed is the word. Jesus said, some seed, which is the word of God, fell on a footpath and the birds came and ate them. Other seeds, or more word, fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The plants sprang up quickly, but they soon wilted beneath the hot sun and died because the roots had no nourishment in the shallow soil. Other seeds fell among thorns that shot up and choked out under the tender blades. But some seeds fell on fertile soil and produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as had been planted. Now, I don't know if the percentage has any significance, but think of it, only a fourth, 25% of the seed, the word of God, fell on good soil and produced a crop. The seed that fell on the footpath, that seed represents the way the word of God is heard by people who don't understand it. It never sinks into their minds or their hearts. And then it's not long before the devil comes along like a vulture and snatches up the seed and the person totally forgets what they've heard. The shallow or rocky soil, that represents people who receive God's word and seem to believe it. But then their faith becomes weak as soon as the going gets rough. The thorns represents the cares of this world. And they deceive and ruin many who might have counted for something otherwise. None of these types of people are steadfast. They're not fixed on God. Because the word of God hasn't taken deep root in their hearts and minds. They're not grounded in God or in his word. So they quickly fade away. Where do you fall in this category of the seed that has fallen, that has been spread? Are you a hard, shallow, or worldly believer? If you are, you'll never be able to go on to the confident dependence upon God that marked the life of David here. That life that he is sincerely commending to us. Because David's confidence is in God and not himself. It's no surprise to see that David is calling for God to be exalted. Notice in verse 5, he says, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens and your glory above the earth. Again, because his confidence is in God and not himself, he calls for people to praise the Lord, to exalt him. God is exalted above the heavens and his glory does fill all the earth. Verses six through nine now. He says that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand and hear me. God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and and measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet for my head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom, I will cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I will triumph. Now, this next section, verses 6 through 9 of Scripture, is a prayer to God to save and to help and to deliver those who have been attacked 
probably by Edom, based on verse 6, followed by God's answer to that prayer in the form of a prophecy in verses 7 through 9. Now, the statement of God here is delivering the land to his people. The area of Shechem that became became part of Ephraim. That's what he's talking about here. The statement of God delivering the land to his people. It was probably Shechem that became part of Ephraim. Shechem was where Jacob settled after he returned to Canaan from Padam Aram, where he lived for 20 years with his uncle and later his father-in-law, Laban. Now, Succoth was the last place that Jacob had previously been. Uh, These two places represent the eastern and western sides of the Jordan River. Gilead, on the other side of the Jordan, where Gad, Manasseh, and Reuben, the half-tribe of Manasseh, settled. And then Gilead and Manasseh represent larger areas of the eastern side of the Jordan that was occupied by Israel at the time of the victory under Joshua. Now, Ephraim and Judah represent the most well-known of the tribes to the west. Ephraim, the power of the northern kingdom, and Judah, the lawgiver, the tribe that came, or sorry, the tribe that King David came from. David said here, God said, and again, this is part of the prophecy, God said that Moab is my wash pot, my wash pot. They were the enemy. The wash pot is a word of contempt of mockery. Moab was their enemies, and it says that he is, he is my wash pot, or he's my wash basin. And then he says, over Edom, I will cast my shoe. Now, it, it's thought that there's a reference in the expression, I will cast my shoe, to the custom in ancient Israel, where the removal of a sandal was part of a legal trans, uh, transaction. And you can see that in Ruth chapter 4, verse 7. It would be it would be similar to the modern custom today of conducting a transaction by signing a document or handing over a set of keys. By handing his shoe over to the other person, the close relative was symbolically handing over his right to walk on the land that was being sold. Verses 10 through 13. David said, Who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies, give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. Through God we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. Now these last verses, 10 through 13, are a prayer for victory over Edom, which is what has probably been David in, uh, in David's mind from the very beginning and is the reason for David writing this particular psalm. David had defeated Edom, and he made it a part of his kingdom years before. But by the time this psalm was written, it seems that the Edomites had regained power, and a new battle was pending. So David asked in verse 10, with this this future battle that seems to be looming over him, he asked in verse 10, he says, Who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? Because, you see, there were a lot of fortified cities in Edom. And the reason for the country's strength and great pride was because of these fortified cities. But when the psalm speaks of of the fortified city, it can only mean Petra. And Petra is that famous hard to get to and apparently invisible invincible mountain stronghold in Edom. Now, if you've ever been to Israel and you've had the opportunity to go to Petra, you know what it's like. I've been to Israel one time and I went to Petra. 
It's an amazing place. And the entrance into Petra is through a narrow path that's cut into the limestone cliffs. It's about a mile long. And the cliffs on both sides go up about a thousand feet. And in some places, it's only wide enough for two horses riding side by side in order to get through. So you see, it would only take a small group of men to, uh, to, to, to be able to defend this entry against the army because it's so narrow and it's so high. And even if the entrance could be broken through, the defenders could run uh, to the mountains into the surrounding area and hide. And once you get into that, there's mountainous and, and caves all through there. Only God could give victory over a stronghold like that. And David knows this. And that's why he cries out to God. And, then, and he even answers his own question in verse 11. Is it not you, O God? Again, referring, inferring that that's going to lead us into this stronghold. Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with your armies? The only one who could bring David into Petra and give him the victory is God. So David acknowledges this fact and he asks, asks God, Lord, God, give us help from trouble. For the help of man, because the help of man is useless. Will God do it? Being assured by the prophecies written in 7 through 9, David is sure that he will. Verse 12, notice that through God we will do valiantly. Notice there's his confidence. For it is he who shall tread down our enemies. Now, how do we take this psalm and apply it to our lives tonight? And in the future, it's by gaining strength for our battles. Obviously, we're not kings. We don't have to fight military battles. We've never seen an Edomite or any other kind of ite. But as Christians, we do have spiritual battles. We're members of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our calling is to advance his kingdom in this anti-God world. We are called to go forth and preach the gospel to every creature and make the, 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 the wonderful name of God known to the world. Paul spoke about this battle in Ephesians. And he explained that our struggles are not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and powers of darkness in this world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And compared to the victories of these anti-God spiritual forces in the world, the victory over Edom and the overthrow of its mountain stronghold, Petra, was easy. How can we get this great, great victory? We can't do it ourselves. Our Christians, other Christians can't help us. No human being can help us. And in this spiritual warfare, man's help is totally useless. You see, we need God to fight our battles with us and for us. We need to ask for his help just like David does. And James tells us in James chapter 4 verse 2, we, you, you do not have because you do not ask. And Jesus, speaking along these same lines, said this in Matthew 7, 7. He said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For whoever asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. And you know what? This is when it says to ask, seek, and knock, this is written in, in, in a continual act. In other words, faith is active, it's not a passive attitude. 
It is, it's saying that we need to be persistent in praying. It's really saying keep asking, keep seeking, and keep knocking. Don't give up. And many times we give up after a few half-hearted tries. And, and if God doesn't respond right away, we think God's not going to answer at all. We come to the clu- conclusion that God can't be found, that he's nowhere around, that he's not listening, that he doesn't care, and that, well, maybe, he, maybe this is even too big for God. But Scripture tells us in Deuteronomy 4.29, you will find him, notice, if you seek him. How? With all of your heart and with all of your soul. That's the difference. Do I seek him with all of my heart and with all of my soul? Or after a week or two, I just give up. What's involved in seeking God? Well, seeking for God to be successful must be sincere. It must be earnest. That is, again, honest and sincere. And it has to be intelligent. It says, with all your heart and with all your soul. And you have to seek him more eagerly and persistently than the men in the East did when they were hunting for hidden treasure. Then men seek for health and knowledge and welfare or fame. Those who look for Jesus like this are not far from him. If you seek him with all of your heart and with all of your soul, you're not far from him. Hebrews tells us in Hebrews eleven six, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he comes to for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Diligently. But knowing God, it takes faith, it takes focus, and it takes follow through. And then Jesus assures us that we will be rewarded. Don't give up trying to find God. Continue to ask for him. Continue to ask for more knowledge, for more patience, for more wisdom, for more love and understanding. And you know what? He'll give them to you. Why? Because it's his will. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Can we really do all things? The power that we receive when we are in relationship, in unity with Jesus Christ is enough to do his will and to face the challenges and the struggles that come up from the commitment that we have with him to do it. Because you see, if you are committed to following Jesus Christ, you are going to endure struggles. You are going to endure trials. Because Satan doesn't want you to succeed. Now, Jesus doesn't give us superhuman ability to do anything that we can imagine without regard to his interest. In other words, he doesn't give us superhuman strength to do something that's not in line with his will. As we fight for the faith, we, as I said, we will face troubles. We will experience pressures and trials. And as they come, ask Jesus to strengthen you. Psalm 118, 8 through 9 says, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Travelers, people who travel the world, they put their confidence in planes, trains, ships, buses, cars, and the people who operate them. Every day, we have to put our confidence in something or someone. Now, if you're willing to trust a plane, you know, and, and, and most people have no idea how they work. Or a ship in the middle of the ocean. You, you, 
you have the confidence that you're going to get to your destination. You have the faith that you're going to get from point A to point B. And you have no idea how these things operate or what shape the person operating them is in. Are you willing to trust God to guide you here on earth and to your eternal destination? I mean, if you're willing to trust a plane or a ship to get you somewhere, how about God to get you to your eternal destination? Do you trust God more than any human being? The scripture says how useless it is, it is to trust anything or anyone more than the almighty God. The psalmist said in Psalm 146, 3 through 8, and I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. Don't put your confidence in powerful people. There is no help for you there. When their breathing stops, they return to the earth. And in a moment, all their plans come to an end. But happy are those who have the God of Israel as their helper whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He is the one who keeps every promise forever, who gives justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts the burdens of those bent beneath their rods. The Lord loves the righteous. Notice the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And the psalmist here is describing powerful people as being unable to be saviors no matter how famous or wealthy or powerful they might be they aren't they aren't able to be saviors they make promises that they can't keep but god is the hope and the help that those in need have and jesus affirms his concern for the poor and the afflicted in luke 4 luke 4 verses 18 through 21 Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has appointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, and that the downtrodden will be freed from their oppressors. Jesus does not separate the physical needs from the spiritual needs. He takes care of both. It's God, not the government that's our hope of the needy. We are to be his instruments to help here on earth. And we have such great trust through Christ toward God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, 4 and 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything, to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our, suffic- our sufficiency is from God. In God lies our sufficiency. Now, when Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 3, 4 and 5, he wasn't boasting in himself. He was giving God all the credit for all that he accomplished. Paul Paul spoke of his humility before God. Nobody can say they can do it all without God's help. No one is capable enough to carry out the responsibilities of God's calling in their own strength. And without the Holy Spirit's help, our natural talent can only take us so far. And as Christ witnesses... We need the character and the special strength that only God gives. Human help, the scripture says, is of no benefit. He says, David says, the help of man is useless. And I'm going to close with this story regarding this fact that the help of man is useless. A fisherman on the way to his boat saw his little boy running to meet him. His son begged him, Daddy, let me go fishing with you on the boat. The fishermen looked at the waves. They had started to become white caps. The waves had started to get a little rough and the father hesitated. But at last he decided that his son could go with him. 
Everything seemed to be okay on the boat until they got halfway to their destination and the storm kicked up and the father and his assistant got thrown into the water. They were able to get a hold of the rope that attached the little lifeboat to the fishing vessel and they climbed in and they were saved. They looked back and they saw the vessel tilting and rapidly filling with water. Then the father saw the pale little face of his son looking through the cabin window. His son had gone below when the storm kicked up, but they didn't know that. The father, in desperation, reached the sinking vessel and climbed aboard. He hit the window with his fist and he shattered the window and his son looked out and called for his father to help him. But he couldn't escape because the window was too small. What could the father do? The father was nearly crazy, in a frenzy, trying to to tear the beams of the sinking vessel. But they were too strong. And then the little, little boy said, Daddy, save me, help me. Deeper and deeper, the vessel turned on her side and the tears streamed down the little boy's face and down the face of the hopeless father. At last he cried, God, help my son, I can't. But the vessel went down with his son and there was nothing he could do. Your soul is in greater danger than that little boy. You're sinking. God help you. Your eternal soul is sinking. I can't help you. Your father and mother can't help you. Your wife can't help you. Your husband can't help you. Nobody and nothing can help you. Only God can help you. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace and mercy, God. Lord, we know that only you can save a sinking soul, Lord. That is so evident when we look at the cross, God. The cross was the only way that you could save a sinking whole, sinking soul, God. Father, man, this, this world tells us that there are many ways to God. And if we work hard enough and long enough and, and, and we, we, we're good enough and, and we don't do anything wrong in life, that, that basically we're going to end up in heaven. Oh, how, how far that is from the truth of the gospel. As Paul said, that none is good. There are none that are good, that all have gone astray, that all fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And apart from Jesus Christ, are lost for all eternity. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you're not sure that you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But tonight you can make sure. The worship team's going to lead us in a song, a song of worship. And if God has spoken to your heart and you want to make sure that you will be in heaven on that day that you breathe your last breath here, then as we worship, you get up out of your seat, you make your way towards the, uh, towards the steps up front, I'll meet you there. And when the song is over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.